0: I had a conversation with Robert Wright, who is the editor-in-chief of Blogging Heads TV, the host of the Wright Show podcast, and the publisher of the Non-Zero newsletter, and he also was my boss when I used to work at Blogging Heads. We talked a bit about cognitive empathy and how it relates to the war in Ukraine. I also aired a few of my grievances about my online quasi-nemesis, Mickey Kaus, and we discussed the future of Blogging Heads, perhaps even breaking some news about that. So as always, remember to rate, review, share, tell your friends, you know the drill. Okay. Enjoy the episode. I mean, one of the things I wanted to talk about was cognitive empathy, which is a uh, hobby hobby horse of bobs. What would you call a hobby horse? I was thinking just a, a term you're hoping to popularize
1: and an idea you're hoping to. Well, no, it is a hobby horse. I mean, uh, I should say I also published a non-zero newsletter and I talk about it a lot there. It's not my term. I mean, empathy is just cognitive distinguishes this kind of empathy from the more familiar kind of feeling their pain empathy or emotional empathy. Emotional empathy is, is identifying with the feelings of people and cognitive empathy is just kind of understanding how they view the world. I mean, understanding what feelings they're having, but not necessarily sympathizing with them. It's just, you know, understanding, trying to understand how the world looks from their point of view. So, you know, classic example these days would be Vladimir Putin. You don't have to like him. You don't have to sympathize with him. But I do maintain that it's in your interest to try to understand how he views the world.
0: Right. So so one uh, sort of meta question about this topic is, is cognitive empathy the best term to describe what you're talking about, or if you want to spread this idea. Is there a different term or something? Because often when I've heard you talk about cognitive empathy on your show, you have to say, well, I'm not talking about regular empathy. And that is a potential hurdle to <laughs> spreading a idea that will take the world by fire if immediately yeah. people are a little unsure what it means. So I was wondering, is I mean, we, we over the years, we've talked about this behind the scenes. Back when I used to work for your blogging heads, trying to come up with different yeah. terms um, to embody ideas that you wanted to get it out into the world. And yeah, is what, why do you think, why do you stuck with cognitive empathy? I mean, there's possible other ones like um, you know uh, someone taking someone else's view or perspective taking or walk a mile in their shoes or, or something like that, that could be a, a possible term instead.
1: Yeah. It's a good question because I think I may write a book that's in one sense or another about this because I do Claim that it's the miracle cure, that if if everyone were better at understanding other people's points of views, whether they're in a, you know, zero sum, fundamentally zero sum competitive relationship with them, or in a more cooperative relationship, or as is usually the case, some combination of the two, you know, most, most people in the world are your frenemies, basically, Um <laughs> the, uh th- that the world would just be way, way better off, you know, fewer wars, uh more win-win outcomes and so on. Um So given that it is my hobby horse and I may write a book about it, it'd be nice to have a term that uh, doesn't put people off. And you're right that the word empathy tends to steer people in the direction of the kind of feel your pain kind of empathy. That's certainly true. And they're like, oh, so we need to understand poor Vladimir Putin. Is that what you're saying? Um, And that's kind of a problem. On the other hand, I, I mean, I don't know what the answer is. We, we've, you know, I've, uh, you know, as you know, one of my frenemies is Mickey Kaus, and apparently he's on your agenda. We're going to talk about him later, and and I, I gather tuned. not not in entirely flattering terms, judging. Well, by you him, know, he yeah. said a
0: couple things on the show about me that we're not entirely yeah, flattering totally, either. Totally, so.
1: totally. Let's let's have a little let's have a little darn fight here. Um, anyway, he and I have talked about this in the parrot room, which is our paywall version of our Friday podcast, and. Some interesting candidates have come up. I mean, one one was cold empathy. One of our commentators came Thanks. up with cold empathy. Uh, and that that's in a way, uh, see, I would have thought that cognitive kind of steers people in the right direction, and at least conveys that you don't mean regular empathy. It, it, it should at least signal like, oh, I need to hear more about what you mean because you probably don't just mean regular empathy or you wouldn't need the modifier, right? I would have thought that, but I, I still, I have trouble. I mean, you know, with people, uh, I have trouble. Of course, see, yeah, part because of the problem- yeah, When you start
0: talking about empathy and then you, your first example is Vladimir Putin, I think someone who's maybe half paying attention is gonna be like, oh, you feel bad for Vladimir Putin? Like that's sort of the, you know- right. Well, so I, I do think, yeah. Some I don't know. Perspective taking is a term
1: you've used. Also, that's and, that's a common term for it. Yeah, it's not the the sexiest term in the world. <laughs> in a way, neither is cognitive empathy. I always thought there was an interesting con- interesting contrast between cognitive, and empathy that uh, would might get people's attention. Strategic empathy is another term. Uh, McMaster used that term. I'm sure he would deploy it differently than I would. Uh, I mean, uh, he would have a Oh well, I don't know. Anyway, he he has used that term. Katrina Vandenhoevel has used that term. Uh and that maybe that's more intriguing. I don't know. It, but you tell me what what is the uh, which is which which of those is the book you would most buy? Well, I yeah,
0: I I don't know what the best one is. I just I don't know. I I think cognitive empathy does have these problems because empathy is the more common of those two words and it has this touchy feely right connotation to it and can lead people to think you feel bad for someone or you pity them or something like that, even though maybe that's not the dictionary definition of it. So, yeah, I do think that might be, you know, holding some people back. I mean, there's other, yeah. I I mean, uh, like, I remember there was years ago, black blogging heads. We had some idea for something called other eyes. Um, and that's right, that's along the same sort of line or something, but I guess the other eyes isn't, isn't, doesn't really make any sense.
1: But I don't know, maybe if people, well, no, it <laughs> does. I mean, looking, looking through at the world through eyes other than your own. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of, um, directions you could go, including, as you suggest, you know, putting yourself in other people's shoes and so on. Uh, you know, none of these seem to me to have, uh, Bestseller written all over them, uh, but but that's just some books you know are not destined to be bestsellers, and that's life. The uh, I, I do think, but but see, the problem isn't just nomenclature, and this is one of the things I would address in the book is, is that the the actual cognitive mechanism of understanding someone's point of view is actually hard to divorce from. Becoming more sympathetic to them and more forgiving of them—that—that that is a fact about the way the human mind works. I don't—I don't think it necessarily should work that way. I mean, I think I understand why it does work that way, as a, in terms of our evolutionary history. But I—I uh, I do think one should be able to separate the two, and—and that—that's a big kind of challenge. That you—you you should be able to say, yes, I understand their point of view. Better Now, and maybe even now I understand why it was almost inevitable that they would do what they did and yet still say if, it, if what they do is bad, they need to be punished. I feel kind of that way about Putin. I I, I feel that we, the US mismanaged the relationship. Uh, and, the, and what wound up happening, not only was a fairly predictable outcome of US policies, but was predicted. Going back years, even decades now, people said if you start down this path of NATO expansion, here's where you're going to wind up. Then in 2008, they said if you do what you're about to do, which is invite Ukraine to join, uh, you know, the guy who's now head of the CIA, Bill Burns, said in a memo to the Bush administration, Putin is going to start screwing around in Eastern Ukraine if you do this, basically. And Bush did it anyway. So I, I, on the one hand, I feel that it is in in some sense our you could use the word fault on the other hand he's the one who violated international law we didn't and and so and to me that matters and so he's the one who deserves punishment and i think you should be able to hold all those thoughts in your mind at once that a lot of leaders in his position would have done this it was particularly predictable given what we know about his own psychology but you know sometimes uh you have to I I think you know, knowing completely understanding why everyone did anything probably naturally inclines you to toward forgiveness. But we do have to punish people uh, as a practical matter sometimes. So yeah, and there's some sort of deep like philosophical questions like
0: underlying these things, like free will and you know yeah, does the self exist or something? And maybe that's that's above my pay grade, but something I mean, kind of a critique of. What you've been saying, particularly about you know understanding Putin's actions, um I think would be like you're thinking, what would I do in his shoes? But then you're thinking, what would I do in his shoes? But he, but he is different. I mean, he is a human, and he has some sort of natural concerns that anyone would have. But he also has mm-hmm. his own unique history and psychology, and things that we don't share. Uh, are you know just different people or people not in his cultural milieu? So one thing would be, you know the sense of like the greatness of Russia and restoring some sort of like sense that there's a like Russian exceptionalism and stuff like this. This seems to be part of Putin's psychology that, you know, led to the invasion of Ukraine, but this is not, you know, if I'm projecting myself into Putin, I don't understand that, you know, we Americans have our own American exceptionalism type things. And it's hard for us to understand how other national, you know, psychologies function. And, and so like so your critique has been a lot about how like NATO you know encroached further and further into the former Warsaw Pact countries and then into like former Soviet satellites and then right up to Russia's border and well, well former Soviet
1: republics right like the Baltic republics and right. and and Ukraine and Georgia uh, would, and what would be an example if that join NATO and 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 Putin sees what we've been doing in Ukraine, sending in weapons for years and NATO trainers and so on, as being turning it into a de facto NATO outpost. That, uh, but in answer to your question, I mean, you're right. You, 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 you can start the exercise of cognitive empathy by saying, well, what would I do? But you can then go further and say, uh, like, well, OK, but what would kind of your average leader of a great power do right leave aside particular russian history and culture you can you can say well what would an american president do if uh like china what it considered its big rival uh formed did a security pact with mexico which meant that china could could start putting troops and weapons in new mexico and was already sending weapons in and so on and you know that's part of cognitive empathy It is just a is not the question of what would you expect Putin to do, but but various more generic forms of the question. What would I do? What would the leader of a great power do? What would you expect any, you know, the average leader of Russia do? Because we know, for example, Boris Yeltsin who was very different from Putin was really steamed about this NATO thing too. And he was really steamed about our uh, bombing uh, Serbia over the Kosovo thing. And so, a number And we also know that these views about Ukraine and NATO are widely shared among the national security elite in Russia. So some of these questions, you know, you, you, for some versions of the question of what would you expect, you know, what do things look like from that point of view, don't require you to understand Putin's psychology deeply, or even necessarily Russian history real deeply. On the other hand, if you want to, I, I, I do think, you know, you're pointing to a, a good point. You There are different levels of the exercise. And, and you should keep going and say, okay, now what do we know about Vladimir Putin? Now, for me, this is a particularly easy exercise because I think I share some of his eccentricities. <laughs> so like, I think I have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. You'd you like to ride a horse shirtless through the rivers. Oh, and- totally. And you know, I you would be shocked about some of the local ordinances here. <laughs> I've actually gotten citations for what riding my horse shirtless. And it's like, it's like in my, it's, it's in front of my own fucking house. Okay. <laughs> and like, you know, cops are pulling up anyway. Um, no, not that the, uh, in that sense, we're very different, but, uh, you know, sensitive to signs of disrespect on the other hand, all these things are just parts of human nature, you know, and, and parts of kind of declining power psychology. I mean, if you just said, well, we're talking about a declining power. Okay. They used to be great. They're not as great. They've still got nuclear weapons, so you better be careful. But they know they're not as great. First thing you'd say is, well, you know, don't shower them with disrespect and contempt. I mean, obviously, they're in a delicate adjust, psychological adjustment. It's like, right? It's like, show them some respect. We repeatedly have not done that. Uh, but anyway, that that's an interesting point you make about the gradations of the exercise, right? From generic, yeah, and- what would I do to what? Would you expect this person, Vladimir Putin, to do, given everything we know about Russia, Russian history, culture, his psychology, and so on?
0: Right. And I mean, you know, most people did not think he was actually going to invade Ukraine. And the area experts were surprised and people.
1: I, I i wouldn't say that. I would say they were. I predicted he would he would invade if we did not Our, or do a of total his concessions. A, a thingy- and a lot of area experts did by the time he did it. They were surprised by the scale of the, the to- yeah a seemingly total invasion with
0: this right. idea that you know he was going to like cleanse Ukraine of Nazi influence or something or seemingly he was he wanted to topple the regime or just the ambition seemed right. to surprise people or and like the speeches he gave on the eve of the um of the invasion seemed to surprise people And, yeah just like you know he has particular historical concerns and understanding that are very alien to. The average american so one thing and i think i'm this was john gans and his newsletter he wrote about this like there's an understanding there's some sort of possibly fringe understanding within russia about like lenin's role in the revolution and whether like lenin was in some respect like an agent of the west who was like sent hmm. in to um a- after the uh toppling of the czar to like mold the <laughs> the revolution in a certain way and so that i mean that's just like you know he, he has his own like understanding and mythology of, of history that like, maybe you could find this somewhere in, in English, um, analyses of of Russian history, but like, this is pretty unusual stuff. And it's just, it's, but maybe who knows if if what he actually believes, what he says, but he's saying weird stuff about like the, the Bolsheviks like screwed up in various ways. Just think that we, you know, people in America, it's hard for, hard for us to understand. So he has his own weird, um, beliefs, and uh, and of course the fact, I mean, another sort of, and this is not exactly a critique, but like, you know, you, you talk a lot about cognitive distortions, especially in relation to your your uh,
1: work on Buddhism and psychology. Cognitive biases, yeah.
0: Yeah, and I mean, obviously, Putin is suffering from, you know, it's hard to see your own cognitive biases and distortions. Um, maybe it's easier to see someone else's, but clearly he's, like, fallen prey to some, you know, confirmation bias and other Common things that enabled him to think that, you know, his military was much better prepared than it actually was, that the Ukrainian people were crying out for, you know, liberation from this regime. It seems like he actually did believe this. So that's, so he sort of like got high in his own supply or believed his own bullshit or something. And so his, so we don't only have to like project ourselves into someone else's shoes or eyes or something, but like what are the distortions that they're going to fall prey to like within
1: that? It just, it seems. Difficult and hard to yeah. hard to predict. Although, I don't, I don't, I mean, those things to, to have predicted the scale of the invasion, it would have helped to know those things. Um, I think to know that it was a mistake, the barriers of our policies were playing with fire wouldn't have taken any of that uh, knowledge. I mean, after all, uh, in 2014, after we did something else I don't think we should have done, which is basically. intervene in and become part of a non-democratic transition of power in Ukraine uh and after that for really predict predictably I think almost uh he sees Crimea um and did this stuff in the eastern Donbass he 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 wasn't suffering he wasn't suffering from misinformation then right he pulled that off easily Crimea was a, a cakewalk and so To predict that he would do things like invade, you didn't have to assume he'd be deeply misinformed. He invaded Crimea, he took it, and he wasn't misinformed. Yeah, and also, I mean, this is sort of
0: arguing against the kind of foreign policy that probably both of us would support. But, like, in retrospect, like, should he have been punished by the international community more? Because he basically got Crimea. I guess there were some sanctions or something. It was, you know, barely a military conflict. And it wasn't like um, and Russia did not become an international pariah. Everyone was sort of like, well, this... Like, this is messed up, but we'll sort of yeah. like let you go. No one else recognized it, but he didn't. Um, you know, he was, if you look at things from his perspective, intervention in Georgia in 2008, intervention in Ukraine in 2014, he more or less gets away with these things without paying uh, any sort of real price. And he's still in charge of the country. Yeah, I- so it's sort of like, you know, this would be like maybe the neocon point or something is like, we didn't
1: punish bad behavior. And it made him think, oh, you know, the West, they'll fall over. They don't well, really they, care about they anything. They do say that. They do say that. I, I would say the Georgia thing, he didn't really start. I, I mean, the Georgian president, Sashkavila or whatever, thought he was going to get more Western support than he did. But I think he started the hostilities. There was a separatist part of Georgia that was already occupied by Russian troops as part of an EU peacekeeping deal, okay mm-hmm. And 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 they did not, as I understand it, fire the first shot. That said, he then did take advantage of the opportunity to go into Georgia proper, and 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 so on. Uh, and like he, and- like he
0: he sort of made a series of like semi risky geopolitical bets, and they didn't backfire on him. You know, yeah. over over his until, you know, six weeks ago, seemingly. Right. And so you could see how someone who is both a you know authoritarian leader who's surrounded by a coterie of people who want to kiss his ass and tell him only good news, who also has like demonstrably pulled off various international exploits without suffering any strong consequences and and winning various territories and stuff. He was like, okay, this is just number three. And, you know, it'll be. Yeah. So like, yeah, obviously, you know, he he gambled. He was either much more of a gambler or much more poorly informed or I don't know, like I mean, you wrote a piece like, is he is he crazy? Like, he doesn't seem, I don't think he's, like, seeing, you know, visions or something, but clearly, like, he wasn't forgetting super accurate information about the state of the world.
1: Yeah, and I think um, he just developed a real B in his bonnet about this because he felt (laughs) consistently disrespected, and I know the feeling. Nobody likes to feel disrespected, you know, and it's like, and I think that really was kind of simmering within him, and I don't think, you know, he's crazy in the sense of hearing voices, but I think... That may have uh, contributed to uh, some decision-making that that wasn't wise. Uh, I mean, I, th- I still think he could come out of this war, okay, politically, in terms of domestic politics, but – It's hard uh, – it, yeah, it's, it's hard to say. I mean – okay, so there was clearly
0: a failure of cognitive empathy on Putin's part. It seems like he really did believe that Ukrainians would, would greet the Russian invaders as liberators and that this would be kind of a cakewalk. Seems um, that way. And it, you know, leaders of great powers continually convince themselves that invading another country will be a good thing. And it seems to rarely (laughs) work out well. We did Um, that with Iraq, yeah. Yes. And like, what, you know, what was the last great power invasion of another country where the people were welcomed as liberators? Is there, I mean, can you think of what after 1945? And and a lot of those countries are occupied by Nazi Germany. So, you know, countries don't like being invaded. And rarely welcome right. you know, welcome their invaders as, as friends. Like this I don't know, it seems
1: pretty obvious. It is but- of course you, Ukraine is it's is nothing like the relationship of Iraq to America in the sense that everybody there speaks Russian, many as their native language, uh, and many of them identified with Russia. Now I think more of them identified with Russia, you know, ten, fifteen years ago than did uh, now, and I don't think Putin totally got that things had changed. I mean, his conception of Ukraine goes way back. He took his honeymoon in Ukraine, okay? Ukraine, Crimea, and and I, I don't think he has updated his conception of the changing sentiment much, especially the changing um, sentiment since 2014. That said, I suspect that we have an overly simple conception of where various allegiances in in Ukraine uh, lie and that may now be uh, coming to the fore. I mean, this thing is uh, our conversation will post Tuesday. We may know more by then, but I think you know the war is moving to a part of the, of Ukraine where more towns are going to feature at least some Russia sympathizers, possibly. Especially since the ones who are leaving and heading west tend not to be the Russian sympathizers, probably uh, disproportionately. Um, so I, I I think um but but yeah, I take your point. I mean, he uh he he didn't didn't totally get the picture. There's no doubt about it. I, I am told that he doesn't use a smartphone and barely, if at all, even goes on the internet himself. And and I, I think he relies on the old fashioned intelligence reports. And you know, that's obviously asking for trouble in the current environment. Right. And
0: yeah. And just, you know, in terms of, like, the geopolitical chess kind of thing, you know, I guess he thought that this would dissuade Ukraine from ever wanting to be in NATO, but, you know, now, like, Sweden and Finland want to, like, join NATO. So it seems like that was a, mis- a huge strategic miscalculation just in terms of the, um, you know, pieces on the yeah. board kind of thing. So, yeah, this, I mean, I was, yeah I mean, this is, like, the biggest, this seems like a bigger, like, international like misadventure disaster than like for for the for the country itself the the invading country than iraq i mean just like well who knows i mean we're we're only six weeks into this disaster but it just seems like you know iraq was a catastrophe you know like stupidest you know one of the stupidest things in in american history definitely the stupidest like foreign policy move in my lifetime and like after six weeks this this seems worse for for russia but I, i i don't know Um, Like there was no chance. I do not know Bush got reelected. Bush got got reelected, and there was no chance, like that, like you know, the CIA chief was going to like shoot Bush in the head. There seems very little chance that that the head of you know whatever the new version of the KGB is called will shoot Putin in the head. But it seems like that is
1: somewhat of a possibility that there could be a palace coup. There could be one. I mean, you know, so we're taping this on April thirteenth. It's almost you know, it's like six days before people will first you know, see and hear it. But, uh, I, I think, you know, a lot depends on what he winds up with. I think given that, I think he planned, he didn't plan for this to last as long. He, he thought it would be wrapped up, uh, certainly by now, uh, even though, you know, there, they may not have been con, you know, there probably was a plan B they probably thought, well, if keev doesn't, you know, if regime change doesn't work, we at least wind up with the Donbass and some other stuff in the East, and that's where they are now. And I think, again, this is one place cognitive empathy comes in. We are assuming there's a common assumption in the West that now things, it's already been so costly for them that he can't come out of this without facing grave dangers on the domestic political front. And I don't think that's true. I, I, I think if the next two, three weeks went swimmingly, which they may well not, but if they did, and he wound up controlling all of those two provinces in the Donbass, Luhansk and Donetsk, and the land bridge to Crimea and parts of Kharkiv uh, province, maybe not the city, itself, whatever. And he hung on to a lot of that. Uh, I, I think that that could be seen as as certainly as enough of a victory in russia and and i think one thing we tend to miss is that how much of a price it's it's worth paying from the point of view of russians uh depends on how the war is framed like we're thinking wait a second you went and picked on a on a dinky country and it cost you this much blood and treasure you can't consider that a win but remember they're not thinking of this. He is framing this, and with some justice actually, as a fight against the American empire, okay? His whole framing of this war is that it's not like, hey, we're gonna squash Ukrainian democracy, okay? That's not the way they think of it over there. They're like, America was behind the 2014 Ukrainian coup. America has been sending weapons in there, uh, America is just, you know, just the other day, uh, Austin, our Secretary of Defense, tweeted proudly, "Hey, we just trained some more Ukrainians in America. We're going to send them back to, to, Ukraine." Now that that is publicity gold for Putin. Okay, that's exactly his narrative. And to the extent that that people in Ukraine, I mean, in Russia, accept that framing, he can get away with a lot of dead bodies, a lot of dead Russian soldiers, if he has something meaningful to show for it, and he says, you know. The American empire tried to stop us from securing these Russian speaking parts of Ukraine for, you know, the welfare of native Russian speakers or whatever. You know, that that message can sell. And, and that's why right. I think the jury's out now. I think the war may not go so well for him in the next few weeks. That's a real possibility. It, it's that also will like be a problem.
0: Um, I mean, let's okay. Let's say that instead of invading the entire country, he had only invaded you know, the separatist regions, or let's say that he decided to pull back and say, you know, we've decided to give peace a chance. I assume the Russian public, mass public would have gone along with any of those decisions and widely supported them because they seem to, you know, the, the media and just like following patriotism and following the leader, they would have been like, oh, yes, I like if he had decided, let's pull back and we'll talk and they end up cutting some sort of deal. I don't think there'd be like an uprising in the streets saying, no, we, we want, you know, we want the Donbass. Like, I think people just would have gone along more or less with whatever he chose to do. So you know it's weird that his this one man's individual decision so much weighed upon it. Um, And he and it, it, whatever I mean, it seems like he need he needs something. And maybe it'll be like recognition of Crimea or something as part of Russia. But whatever, I think he could probably if he stays in power, he can sell whatever it is and say, oh yeah, we killed all the Nazis and we liberated the Russian speakers and the domestic consumption you know yeah. we'll we'll buy it the thing is if there's some if there's like some coterie of leaders in the elite who you know want their yachts back or something or just want russia to be sort of a normal country and you know there there's i would say he has, he's much more threatened by elite opinion and there's a smaller coterie of elites and most of them are like directly loyal to him or his childhood friends or something so that's you know one way an authoritarian stays in power but I, that seems yeah. more the threat to him than the people uprising yeah. because they seem to just go along with yeah, whatever well, I, he says, unless it's even more disasters, you know, for I mean, years couple, of disasters.
1: I mean, first of all, the oligarchs do not have as much political influence as they had under Yeltsin. OK, that that was a change that Putin made. He he, he made it clear who's in charge here. It's like you, you can go and make your money, but uh, I am not going to be hostage to you. That that apparently is a real change that that happened he put at least one of them in jail to make the point Mm -hmm. um and that that they had to kind of not cause political trouble for him okay if they wanted to if they wanted to keep making their money um that doesn't mean they are of no significance but they don't have as much influence as they may have had on yeltsin meanwhile there there is also among elites national security elites and so on there is a, a strong you know kind of nationalist Sentiment there, there was some pressure on him to do something in Ukraine. I don't, I don't mean he really needed the pushing, you know, I think he wanted to do something, but there are people who there, there are some, some voices in Russia of some significance who wouldn't be satisfied with just the Donbass. Now, he could have totally sold that, and I also think if he had gone in in a more obviously circumscribed way, like just pushing the frontiers on the Donbass. I, I think he might not have encountered nearly as draconian a bunch of sanctions either. I, I think yeah, it was partly the shock me. and awe part of the invasion that galvanized Europe. And yeah. uh, so and I think that might have been smarter in a number of ways. Right. So something I think, and sometimes I, I read
0: the comments on your episodes and something I've seen the commenters criticize you about is um, empathy and or cognitive empathy for the Ukrainian people and their agency within this you know, great power struggle and they are the ones fighting and dying in this in this battle mm-hmm. and they i mean i don't think they're going to get like ukrainian public opinion is i mean it would, it would take like a real war of attrition or something mm-hmm. to really grind them down and the atrocities that are like being uncovered from incompetent um russian occupation of various towns and so forth like aren't
1: is not going to make the average ukrainian more eager to cut a deal i think they're going to be outraged and they want I have have written this in my last, in the Friday edition of uh, the newsletter, non-zero newsletter. I said exactly that part, the positions are hardening on both sides. Now, as for, but, but, but it's interesting, when people say, hey, Bob, what about some cognitive empathy for the Ukrainians? Often that means they're not getting the first point, that cognitive empathy is not the same as emotional empathy. Often what they mean is, shouldn't we care about their welfare? Well, of course we care about their welfare. I'm one of the people who was arguing that we should engage in serious negotiation to prevent the war and keep a bunch of them from being killed. Okay, But as for, um, you know, if you're trying to stop the invasion, the exercise of cognitive empathy needs to be primarily directed toward the, the guy who's going to decide whether there's going to be an invasion. That would be Putin. Right. And I don't think we were doing a good job of that. I agree that, you know, you definitely want to try to understand all perspectives. I mean, that said, I, I I think few in America are doing a very good job of understanding uh the political forces that are shaping the psychology on the Ukrainian side. Because we've bought into this very idealistic kind of framing like evil, authoritarian, even totalitarian regime invades marvelous liberal democracy. They're just like us you know and that's that's not true there are uh you know zelensky uh has i think been under some pressure for some time from the hard nationalist right which includes this azov brigade with this it's nazi past and includes the political forces that it's aligned with and and that doesn't get much play in the american press so it's not like it's it's not like Americans are doing a great job of cognitive empathy with Ukrainians, but not with Russians. They're doing a terrible job with both, if you ask me. Uh, in terms of our, our commentator elites on mm-hmm. you know op-ed pages, CNN, I don't think they're shedding much light on the relevant psychology on either side in terms of what's actually shaping the decision-making. Well, yeah. I mean there's definitely a very simplistic good guys,
0: bad guys dynamic that a lot of people – both commentators and normal people you know quote unquote, normal people you see on social media who have added the ukrainian flag onto their profiles and stuff like that and i think there's various obvious explanations for that yeah the superpower invading a smaller country i mean just any country invading another country um i, I live in jersey city and there actually is a historic ukrainian um population here but i've seen you know makeshift ukrainian flag color banners up and i doubt actually i, I did see one today. Someone like in Brighton beach or something, someone chalked
1: a Russian flag and a Z. I can, I can open my, when, if I pull my curtains back, I can see my neighbor's Ukrainian flag. I mean, so so there's, yeah. So some of that
0: is good guy, bad guy, big, bad wolf, you know, kind of thing that I think is very natural, but yeah, I think it's just like, you know, the Ukrainians are the ones who ultimately, who are suffering the vast majority of uh, deaths, injuries, destruction to their lives, destruction of the of their houses and so forth. And their interests, you know, I mean, they're going to be the whatever settlement is reached. They're the ones who have to live with it, literally. And let's say some sort of deal is cut in which the Donbass territories become quasi-independent republics or something within Moscow's orbit. Like, there's going to be a lot of people <laughs> who don't want to live there anymore and want to go somewhere else. Um, you know, perhaps somewhere else in Ukraine or somewhere else in, or, or move to Russia or something. And a lot probably, of them
1: will have left a lot of, uh, by the time the, the fighting really eats up. And if really the, the entire them.
0: land is conquered the way Russia seems to conquer, it'll be like moonscape or something. And, and there won't be any living people there anymore. They would have had to flee or they would have been killed. So there's a 20,000 foot perspective on these things with grand strategy. And then there's like, yeah, the people who are obviously suffering. And I guess, so in part of like, if you want your preferred foreign policy vision to prevail, I think you need to give lend more credence to that sort of maybe it's regular empathy or something of like yeah the people the people who are paying like paying the price and whose lives are being destroyed. Look, I, the things
1: I've been I have I have been arguing that the path we're on is the path to a bunch of dead Ukrainians right now. The path the U.S. is on, Ukraine is on. Uh, you know the the way we kind of just slowly uh, accelerate the provision of weapons to whatever level is necessary to keep Russia from making encroachments is, is just a way of of sustaining the fighting for as long as possible. And 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 I've been arguing against the people like okay, so the Ann Applebaum's of the world, you know the the Russia Hawks, the Michael McFalls who are basically saying more or less like keep fighting until you chase the Russian troops out of the country. That's a recipe for a whole lot of dead Ukrainians. Okay. that but, That's but, a recipe for more dead Ukrainians than saying, let's, let's be uh, mindful of the opportunity to cut a deal, even if it leaves Russia in, with some territory they occupy. Okay. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how you come off depicting my position as, as, Insensitive to the needs of Ukrainians in a way, the downside of of uh, a, some kind of early peace deal is the precedent it sets by giving some degree of positive reinforcement for an invasion, and, and 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 the price for that is kind of distributed all over the world in a certain sense, or at least beyond Ukraine. So. I don't even know what, I, I, I don't quite get what is, it, how am I being insensitive to Ukrainian suffering? I don't understand. what What is even well, okay. the allegation? Okay, so let's say that when
0: Putin invaded, Zelensky had said, okay, I'm fleeing the country, it's yours. You could imagine that happening. And that's kind of what happened in Afghanistan in some respect was the, you know, the, the army yeah. gave up and the president fled. Um, that would have resulted in fewer dead Ukrainians so on like a pure utilitarian short scale, like would have stopped death and suffering yeah. and et cetera, destruction of cities if they had just surrendered. Now, if Zelensky had fled, you know, it's possible that like militias would have risen up to yeah. repel the invaders anyway, because they don't want these fucking Russian soldiers driving through their towns or occupying their schools or raping their wives and daughters. Like, you know, it is just very natural. So any sort of peace deal will have to be like accepted by Ukrainian people, that's more. I think that's more what I'm aiming at is that, like, if they cut a deal for the Donbass, like, don't you think it's going to be irregulars within Ukraine who say, No, we want, like, the Donbass is ours. We want the Donbass back. Like, they have as much of a claim to it as, as Putin does. And then you have, like, some sort of insurgency or, like, guerrilla war for a long period of time and even more death and destruction. And well, so I forth. mean, you
1: might, I don't know. Uh, the, uh, I'm just making the point that it's far from clear that the people, who purport to be so concerned about the welfare of the Ukrainians have tended to to advocate policies that maximize the chances of Ukrainians dying. And it goes back to before the war when they did not want to negotiate meaningfully with Russia. Okay. and and I would remind you that if we had negotiated, uh, we would not and headed off a of war and i'm not sure we could have but they didn't even want to try we'll never know whether we could have because we didn't we did not offer to uh just uh, freeze nato expansion for example a key a key russian demand we didn't offer to do that we didn't offer to abide by the minsk agreement which which would give uh the donbass provinces some autonomy within ukraine and so on we didn't we didn't offer those things and for all we know that would have prevented a lot of death. It would have given no positive reinforcement for invasion. That would have been kind of positive reinforcement for threatening to invade. But look, uh I, so I, I'm just making the point that I don't understand. I, I, I just I just don't understand how people somehow equate my positions with indifference the suffering of Ukrainians. It just, it just makes no sense whatsoever. Well, maybe, to I mean, people who 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 argue that you're not pursuing avenues to peace and avenues that could prevent war are these callous monsters who don't care about the suffering of the people who die in the war they're trying right. to prevent.
0: Well, there's, the, there's their suffering. And then there's also like their agency or their volition as like independent actors in a country in which they decide that, you know, that they voted on their leader. And so no one has a sovereign right to join NATO okay but, uh, but that's but you know ukraine is never joining nato at this point yeah um well, who knows that's probably but, but sweden and finland might and that and you know once again showing that this was a strategic disaster on putin's side i mean we've talked about this a lot there's a couple other things we want to cover but i mean the, i mean the other sort of hobby horse type thing that you've talked about a lot is international law and since this is i i guess i mean crimea was obviously violating international law annexing other territory this is a big violation of international law. Seems like international law is not doing a great job in general. For and the US has contributed to that by ignoring it, especially with the Iraq invasion. Well, violating
1: violating it, yes.
0: Right. You know, this is this is as clear-cut, we can say at least as clear-cut or more clear-cut a violation of international law as the Iraq invasion. And and at least they sort of went through the motions of respecting international law in some ways, like there was the presentation before the UN and blah, blah, blah. But and, you know the Iraq war was a total disaster. And so we have this huge violation of international law. We have seeming war crimes are seemingly being committed under a, some true system of international justice. Like, you know, Vladimir Putin would end up in the Hague or something like that. But none of that seems like it could happen in any realistic world. So where does this, where does he think this leaves international law? It is
1: certainly not better than it was two months ago. Uh, no, it's not. Um, and, you know, that's why I'm not, I'm not, you know, I, it's so weird. It's like, uh, I mean, that's why I'm not against, I have not come out against things like sanctions. I mean, I think we're overdoing them probably. They're probably going to lead to no good place. I haven't come out against now providing support for Ukraine against Russia. And that's because I take international law so seriously. Um, so, yeah, I think you should try to uh, provide negative reinforcement for the violation of international law. But A, there's a limit to how much negative reinforcement you can provide when the violator is a nuclear power. That's why we could invade Iraq. Kind of same idea. You know, you're where a superpower is only so much they're going to do. Um, B, this is why I keep harping on the mistakes we made that led to this situation. One reason I really want, want to avoid. Stereotypes towards situations where another country is likely to invade some country is that then that creates, uh, first of all, a lot of suffering, but also the unfortunate example of a violation of international law that may not be punished adequately. And so I'm sorry, but I'm going to keep coming back to the fact that it was nothing short of foreign policy malpractice to get us to this point where there was this invasion. And uh so I I don't know what else I can say. I mean, uh the other thing is the other thing that I think constrains uh how much negative reinforcement I'm gonna be in favor of providing a country that invades other countries of uh is that we keep doing it ourselves. I I mean it would be one thing if Biden said, you know, this is a major violation of international law. This can't go on, but I think. It should be the occasion for a clean start, and it's time that America fessed up. It has done it, is, it is no seriously. I mean, it would be one thing if we had a president who's going to say, Look, we really need to quit violating international law ourselves. If we're going to now demand that uh, you know, ask the whole world to get on board for major pushback against this violation, that would make me feel a lot more comfortable, uh, with like you know, major, major, uh. Pushback, and I'm just fucking sick of the hypocrisy of us do it c- continuing to do this and uh and Americans not even being aware and and the people in the blob, the people who shape you know these people at these think tanks and so on, they're barely aware of themselves. it's just incredible, it's embarrassing uh you know and, and by the way, this is one reason I think everyone's framing this as you know the big crime here is what we're doing here is protecting democracy, right that that that's an easier thing for us to say because if you say we're protecting, you know, we're, we're defending principles of international law, well that's obviously bullshit. We are the leading violators of international law over the last 30 years probably. There's some competition you know, for that title, but we're Ru- as bad Ru- as anybody. Russia is is giving us a run, a run for our money, you know, it, it, for the last, last 10, for the last yeah. 10,
0: yeah, but over the last 20 30. Well, you and- know, someone who actually what you're saying I don't think any, any American press is ever going to give that sort of like a culpa speech, but someone who sort of gestured in that direction was Donald Trump, who said something like, you know, you don't think we're killers? Like we're killers? Like like that was sort of his cynical like level. You know, someone said something bad about Putin, and then he defended Putin by saying like, oh, like you think we haven't killed?
1: Um, you know, right? But but he would never. But Trump would never say a kind word about international law. <laughs> no, he doesn't. He doesn't give a shit about any law, domestic or international, especially That's when it conser- constrains him in, in in any
0: way. Okay, we we talked about this for a while. Um, should we? I mean, other possible topics were me complain about Mickey, um, and talk about the future of blogging heads.
1: Yeah. Um, well, it's your call. You're you're uh, you're guiding the conversation. <laughs> well, i'll okay, I'll complain about Mickey briefly, at least. Okay. And
0: so Mickey I, Kaus, I encourage that. Yeah. Blogger, blogging pioneer, co founder of Blogging Heads, current weekly conversation partner of you in the parrot room and the pre parrot room conversation. And he and I, I've sort of like trolled him for a while online. And then, especially after January 6th, I said something not so nice about him. And I, I laid out, I spent about 50 or 20 minutes an episode I did with Daniel Bessner around a a year ago where i made out the full anti mickey case but i guess sort of like you know i I jokingly said our my cast problem and ours because i feel like there is sort of a um like do you think i mean i guess by putting it plainly like do you think that you know you talking to mickey for like three or four hours a week is ultimately good for like your understanding of the world and furthering goals of international cooperation and peace that
1: you, that don't you, think, you think we brought peace on. to the
0: world yet Um well i don't know i just think he's kind of gone off in such strange directions he's, he, i mean he's a very idiosyncratic guy and his idiosyncratic thinker and he's he's worthy. the like, it's not like you're talking to like a trump republican because he, he he's a trump supporter and voted for him twice but like his concerns are not the average trump voters concerns like he's very concerned about legal immigration and about um child welfare payments fully refundable or not those are like his two main policy positions and obviously a lot of Trump voters care about immigration but he's sort of like a one issue voter on immigration and sometimes he talks about like the deplorables as sort of like you know like he's part of that group but I just think
1: he's well you consider
0: him deplorable, don't you I do but I but the people who self-identify as deplorables or patriots or something who are sort of like uh, marching beneath the Trump banner like he does not speak for those people like he's not a you know, he's he's not like a lifelong conservative and he doesn't believe in, you know, the pedophilic cabal of blood drinkers who Trump was fighting against. Like he he has his own weird angle into Trump. So I think it's you know, I think you could learn more about the world if you're talking to like a genuine MAGA
1: person every week. Well, but also, I, I like, think I mean he's not full on classic MAGA, but he understands I think he understands the the MAGA perspective. I think he's more in touch with it than I, I, I am. Although I, I, you know, I try to, I try to stay in touch with it. But um, I, he, I don't know the way he he frames issues. It just seems like he. I mean, obviously,
0: he like consumes right wing news and like will reference Breitbart and other right wing news outlets and Ann Coulter. But I don't know. He just has it's an odd perspective. But anyway, I the anti Mickey case is sort of like is is like Mickeyism like. Infecting Bobism
1: <laughs> in a uh, well, do you see signs way. of that? I'd you'd be a better
0: judge than I. Well, one, so one thing, and I mentioned this in our the document I sent you about topics would be like conspiratorial thinking because Mickey is very conspiratorial in his understanding of politics, and he, right. uh, he popularizes the term kabuki, which is like you know, there's sort of like a dub show in front that the politicians are acting out, but like the real stuff is happening behind the scenes. And I think there's like that, that's not a crazy way to understand politics, but he often seems to think there's hidden machinations behind the scenes and something is really going on or like, what's the real thing? Who's, who's like really talking to Biden and all this stuff. And I don't think, I mean, there's, you know, we're living in a very conspiratorial time and the events of the past couple of years have shown how many Americans believe conspiracy theories in general. I think they're generally false. And I think it's not a a profitable way to really think about what's happening in the world. And I don't know that, that seems to be
1: sort of one of his core under, like and, ways and of, you ways see signs that I'm being infected with this? Is the well, tinfoil I mean, he, hat I'm wearing now the <laughs> Well yeah, I mean he
0: he puts on the tinfoil a tinfoil hat sometimes literally when he gets into his more speculative Yeah <laughs> um, we should we should emphasize
1: is. that he's joking when he does that. Right. But
0: but uh, yeah well he has lots of props. Um yeah. but yeah I mean you do two, two episodes more or less a week with him then one episode we're talking to someone. I'm one such someone today. Usually it's someone who knows more about the world than I do. But it's like, yeah, you know, that much Mickey exposure, I feel like is not good for clear, clear thinking about about the world, because I just think he's wrong about so many things. And one of the most obvious is that he voted for Trump twice.
1: Yeah, I don't really see signs that he's influenced I'm trying to think. I mean, first of all, you're right. I have one another show I do that comes out every Tuesday. That's always with somebody else. And and those Tend to be. That's where I tend to bring on, like you know, area experts and stuff. And you know, I mean, first of all, look, uh, uh, the idea of a podcast conversation that's regular, right? Two, three people, same crew. That obviously seems to have some audience appeal, just generically. A lot oh, of people sure, do yeah. it, and 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 you know, you know the feeling. Like, okay, I know what this chemistry is going to be. I like it. Not everybody likes our chemistry uh mickey and my chemistry but but some people do um (laughs) i I I like the chemistry more than i like what mickey's saying for sure right I I, i mean that's the other thing is it's a very it's not like there's a whole lot of different people i could do this with mickey and i have a very distinctive relationship we've known each other a very long time uh and we there are very uh there are big contrasts in our ideologies but there's a kind of a commonality in our sensibility. You know what I mean? It's like, and that's why on the conspiracy thinking, I don't think I'm in principle all that far away. I think we're both kind of have a somewhat cynical view of the way the system works, and um, and, and, and 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 go around as you know, carrying us. I think an assumption into our assessment that good journalists should carry, which is that things may not be what they appear to be. I'm definitely carrying that into the war i mean the the, the ukraine war th- there's so much sympathy in America for ukraine and and again, that's where my sympathies lie, but it it so pervades the media's presentation to it that you know I'm always trying to look deeper uh whenever any any kind of you know uh story comes out with a pro ukraine spin. I immediately you know do a do a second check because. I think that's what you should do war war is an especially reliable disorder of information. Anyway, I think, I think Mickey and I are both inclined to to do that. So anyway, I'm just saying there are certain things about our sensibility that we have in common that I think facilitate chemistry. And then there's these contrasts both in our ideology and in some ways in our, in our characters, in some ways, uh, I don't know what uh I mean it uh, I mean, it sounds like you actually listen to it as- co- as conversation as conversational combinations that you deplore go <laughs> it it sounds like this one is one that uh continues to attract you more than many maybe yeah, I mean I've you know
0: been a, a listening watching blogging heads for many years this one, I guess about fifteen. And you know, know you well, know Mickey a little bit. I keep, I keep on listening um, most weeks, and find it, find it compelling, but also very frustrating. And there's times where I'm, you know, um, shaking my fist at at the conversation.
1: Um, so it's it's definitely compelling and wishing I that I and wishing that I would uh, give more well, pushback. I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, I, my defenses me sort of like, have been worn down to in yeah, some
0: ways. I admit. Yeah. That how that, much but. how much pushback can you offer when you're in this? i mean you have a friendly relationship but it's also a professional relationship because you're making money off of the patreon and then you know it's sort of like you know could laurel tell hardy to go fuck himself or something you know you, got, you guys are paired together so um but when you know Laura and hardy weren't arguing about whether or not um you know bob saget was murdered or something or something like this so um so yeah i don't know i mean and i i mickey has you know said some not so nice things about about me uh, on the show
1: uh and i've said it's not clear who started that that's a that's a real uh you know he did
0: Well, i didn't i didn't want to just clear up but this was a while ago he said i called him racist i'm almost positive i did not i've never called him racist not a charge i throw around lightly i mean i've called him like a fool and, and stuff like that but i don't think i've i've called him racist but yeah i do think he just sort of I don't know there's something about his you know um obviously he gets my goat in, ver- in various ways and I've invited him on to talk to me directly but he um he should another, do it someone else is someone else who doesn't reply to my emails when I uh, <laughs> when
1: I when I reach out I would um, encourage him to do it now you do remember I hate to torment him with this memory but years and years ago Ezra Klein you remember when Ezra Klein actually not only said I'm throwing down the gauntlet to debate yes. uh, Mickey Gauss. Had a gauntlet and threw it yes, down he had, he on blogging Heads TV. What? Yeah, this one is of the like, early This prop- is like fourteen years ago or something. Yes. But and I Mickey said, declined. You know, Ezra Didn't Klein's much it. more handsome
0: at age twenty five than I am at age thirty nine. So that was I think that was part of you know, Mickey thought that there's the contrast between youthful, <laughs> youthful Ezra, and at that point, like fifty-something Mickey would be, you know, would just sway the viewers so much that he, he couldn't get a well. On the other chance, hand, Mickey's we... not fifty-something anymore. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, but it would be yeah. If we if on my show, it would be audio only, so so no one would be swayed by my youthful. Well, shit, I'll tell Vic, him, that. you know, visage. Uh, but yeah. So the invitation is still out there, Mickey. Um, if you want to take it, I mean, do you do you want to briefly talk about future blogging heads? And sure. Where I mean, where where do you see the site? I don't work for the site anymore. My show's no longer
1: on well, the site. Well, first of all, there's a gonna, consumer. There's going to be a rebranding. I, I I guess we haven't told you this. I mean, I've, I, I've seen it teased that there's going to be. Yeah, you heard it in the parrot room. Yeah. I mean, look, blogging heads for people. There's probably few people listening or watching who remember this has now been 17 years, right? Since we started it, it had a reason for being. Uh, it was there was there was nothing else. There was no other in the realm of political discussion, there was no other place where you had online split screen video discussion debate, you know, between two people who were in different places, right? right. Because we, you know, worked out the technology before people had broadband uh, consistently, we, we we had a way of doing it. and um, And so for a while, it was kind of the place, you know, also at the same time, there was this group of people who were now influential in print journalism, but they weren't quite MSM. They were bloggers. And you didn't see them on cable TV, by and large. You might see right. the New York Times correspondent. So blogging heads became, first of all, the the place for video debate discussion about politics online and also the place where these, you know, a lot of these people, Chris Hayes, Ezra Klein, Matt Iglesias, this is where they first showed up on video. Mm-hmm uh Ari Melber, a lot, a lot of cable TV people, and as you know, for a while it was a feature on the New York Times. So unusual was it, right? It was like uh, hard to believe, right? Like imagine, like the Times goes to us to provide the technology. <laughs> they did, they did, they true. did yeah. they weren't doing it. But but now we've gotten to a point where any two people can easily arrange a video thing and put it on YouTube or put it on Substack. The the reason for Bloggingheads' existence is gone. There's no anyone can do it. It may be that I could have, if I'd focused on this exclusively and been better at various things that I'm not great at, and and maybe not spent time writing books. Maybe I could have turned it into the Madison Square Garden of this, and it would still be that, and it would still be the place that people aspire to be seen. Who knows? Anyway, I didn't. It's not that. So, um, so it, it's just, uh, so we've been basically encouraging. I mean. First of all, it had changed from it had become a place where there were just basically a few regular or semi regular shows. And we weren't doing a lot of setting up of these one offs, which we used to do. Remember, Mm -hmm. you remember we used to like go out and look and go, oh, these two bloggers are arguing. Let's have them on. And they'll argue with each other in video. Um, It it was no longer that anyway. It had like, uh, you know, your show, DMZ, my show, the right show, the Glenn show. About a year ago, we started encouraging people to spin off their things onto their own YouTube channels. One thing that had happened is that, in addition to Blogginghead site, we had Blogginghead's YouTube channel. Because we were convinced by this guy who knows a lot about YouTube that it actually would make sense for all of us in terms of building up audience. Mm-hmm. So Glenn has moved to his own channel. DMZ is about to move to their own uh, YouTube channel. You have done that although for now uh, it's just audio that's on your youtube channel the culturally determined channel yeah uh and and so once it's complete uh we're gonna change the name to something with non-zero in it which is already the name of my newsletter uh and it may be it may have my name in it uh there's a case for that but it will definitely have non-zero in it and uh you know it's a little bit of brand consolidation. As you know, there's probably two more brands than are optimal floating around my orbit. Um <laughs> so the 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 name of this will be a, a change in the name of the YouTube channel. I, I think ultimately what is called the right show on uh, as an audio feed and, and as a show on on the Blackheads Network, the, the audio feed will become Robert Wright's nonzero. Mm-hmm. That'll probably become the name of the, the, the YouTube channel. Um, anyway, certainly Non-Zero will be there. That, that'll be the unifying thing more. And, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it's, from my point of view, kind of bittersweet. Uh, but, you know, that's life. I, I mean, <laughs> you know, Blogging was, was this great thing. And, and, uh, and the archives will be there. And there's incredible stuff in the archives. I mean, tons of people were on Blogging Heads. Uh, so is Glenn
0: going to stick with the site? Do you know, is, is, or is the site mainly going to be your content? I
1: suspect that after the brand change, I mean, first of all, the site itself, uh, there are still loyalists who go there. It is, it is, in quantitative terms, not a big part of the picture. Like, a large majority of the people who watch the video do it on YouTube. And there are as many people who only listen to the audio as there are who watch the video at all. So the number of people who watch the thing on the site is a small fraction. The site will still be there. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, for a few months after the rebranding, you'll still see Glenn uh, in the blog. He has audio feed and on the site. uh, And maybe for those for those few months dmz can be in the Blogheads audio feed i mean you know you could be I, I i uh i didn't i never you know you're you haven't been in the blogging heads audio feed lately but i never meant to like i i assumed that was your decision well yeah i wanted to try you know doing some sort
0: of monetization which i'm you know, it's still a ways off, but yeah. you know, I think you are generally averse to running ads. Um, and I saw some possibilities for ads, although, you know, my traffic is not huge um, and I ha- I'm rebuilding because I lost the people who are listening to plugins there. And yeah, some sort of Patreon thing. It just made it. And, and plus I had always, I mean, you know, we had a long behind the scenes debates about the importance of the video, the importance of the audio. I always saw my thing more as like a regular podcast where it was mainly people were consuming it you know, while they're commuting or taking a walk or doing dishes or something like that, and less appointment viewing where people are sitting down and, and watching me and so I right. I thought it made more sense to focus focus on that. But um but yeah, I mean it is um there was a time blogging heads was right in the middle of it where there was all these independent people who were using the new technology to make names for themselves and then a lot of those people sort of like merged together and, you know, or joined larger organizations like launching vox or something so that was two of two original plugins people klein and iglesias and then so there was sort of a start diffusion there was people getting jobs you know because they need help in terms of something and actual organizations and so that like the coming together period like plugins sort of came with that and then it sort of became a core group of shows but now there's like another dispersal that like substack and other things are encouraging uh-huh. where people are leaving um they're either they're either going off on their own or they're getting hired by the new york times seems to be the two ways you can make a living in media these days and it is more yeah the and getting more into like what it was 15 years ago of like individual brands individual names where you you only want matt iglesias's takes you subscribe to his thing um and yeah fewer people are i don't know it seems like the energy is is more in personal branding and individual personalities and yeah. stuff like that,
1: which it does vibe with sort of like a hosted podcast. Right. You know, and uh, as far as Substack, you know, whenever anybody on Substack wants to have a conversation with somebody else, they can use Substack to distribute that. They can easily record it as audio, video. So, yeah, the landscape is uh, changing quite a bit. I-, I would, you know, if I were you, I would – uh. Stick at least some of your audio podcasts in the Blogging Heads audio feed while it is a unified feed, mm-hmm. uh, which is to say over the next, uh, you know, month or two or whatever, and and have a thing up front telling people that if they want to keep getting your show, they should s- subscribe to the culturally determined podcast feed. Yeah, maybe. Because, yeah, maybe because we you know, because like... there are because, you know, the, the Blogging Heads feed still does. Uh, pretty good traffic. It does about, I mean, I am on both feeds now, The Right Show and Blogging Heads and, and the two have about the same number of subscribers right. uh, uh, the, uh, the audio podcast. But, but, you know, just the the energy is less in subscribing to something like Blogging Heads and in subscribing to Robert Wright's thing, Glenn Lowry's thing. Well, that's true, but it never hurts to also be, you know, it's like right. it, Ricochet does a super feed of all these conservative podcasts. Okay? Yeah. And you can subscribe if you're conservative to the Ricochet super feed. Uh, now we're not going to continue that uh, for you know more than another five six months, but but and maybe less. But but I'm just saying I, I think it's in your interest to um to to do that and advertise the fact that you have an independent podcast feed. I mean we're yeah. advertising it now, but it doesn't <laughs> hurt. Yes, and that culturally determined uh, whatever podcast app you use you know, subscribe, rate, review, tell
0: your friends. Um, Okay. We've gone, we've gone on for a while and I'm not sure if I have anything else. Um, So maybe we should (laughs) wrap things up there.
1: I suppose. Yeah. Uh, I think we've gotten to almost everything uh, on your list of uh, on your list of topics. So that's not bad. And yeah, people should check out your show Uh, and uh, and they should check out DMZ. All the all the blogging heads legacy uh, shows and and <laughs> and needless to say the Glenn show which is doing very well.
0: Yes. Um, yeah. I think the the content is still generally strong. Um, but yeah, it, it makes sense. Rebranding makes sense to me. It seems like th- there was that old model time. Time had passed it by. So I, I'm I'm you know I, mean, I am somewhat yeah. sad if blogging heads the brand is being replaced or something. But it it, it makes sense for um, I think given what. You know what the world is like these days
1: yeah i mean plus let's face it let's face it the, the term blogging doesn't uh i said like, that
0: i was saying this for a long time yeah blogs are dead <laughs> and tvs sort are of dying as well then you're just stuck with heads and
1: you know well plus i mean people may not get the reference anymore to talking heads i mean not the talking heads was not just the name of a musical group which many people have probably forgotten but also it was a reference to what we used to the term we used to use for like people on T on new on new on cable news and stuff and evening news they were talking head so so it's it's an antiquated brand in so many ways uh and I, I think it should get a uh a, a proper I don't want to say burial but a, a nice place in a museum <laughs> or maybe it's it's a museum of its own and and the archives will be there Okay, well, that's yeah, that's good to hear. There is,
0: I mean, I I I can imagine future like intellectual historians. I think actually Daniel Bessner has said this explicitly. You know, using the blogging's archives as a way to understand. I'm telling you, were, man, I was thinking. I was
1: just looking at the 2008 conversation between Bob Kagan and Frank Fukuyama, on blogging heads TV, where Frank is saying, you know, Putin is going to be. He predicts it basically. He says, you know, I think the stuff we've done in Kosovo. You know, there was the intervention, and now we're pushing for Kosovo independence. It's driving Russia crazy. I think they're going to use it as an excuse to start screwing around in Georgia. Frank calls it. Okay. And uh, these are significant. There are a lot of significant conversations. Yeah. And especially, um, I know
0: that a lot of, I mean, just people who sort of mid level intellectuals or writers or thinkers who kept blogs, a lot of those are sort of like link rot, like sort of, you know, they forgot to pay their. Yeah you know, p- pay to keep the URL or something or the, the whatever was hosting it disappeared. And so there's a lot of stuff has vanished yeah. um, from that era of, of
1: blogging. So, so keeping. Yeah. Keeping and I, I should say, I think we're just going to, the site itself, blogging and I think we're just going to leave it that URL. It will be where the archives are and my stuff will, will probably continue to post there. I mean, for the months to come, so will Glenn's and so on, but, but um. There's no reason if you're going to put a video on YouTube, you know, if I'm going to have my show on YouTube, there's no reason it can't be there. Uh, but the main thing is that, and and I don't, even though, you know, YouTube channel, the podcast are changing to non-zero, we will probably put something up there to signify that. But I think at that one place, the term blogging heads will survive both at the URL and in some form in the logo and, and and the archives uh, will be there. And in fact, we're actually cleaning up. The, we're we're actually going through now, and making sure because there are some dead links. So there's some links oh, that's where good, yeah. where you know you don't get the the video, but you get the audio, or you do blah blah blah. We're we're cleaning that up. Okay, that's so, good. So that's that's fe- a service. Future, that's so a service ar- ar- to future
0: historians. I think
1: archaeologists yet unborn <laughs> can rest assured uh, that as they sift through the ruins of our civilization. <laughs> they'll be able to see where the trouble. Began. Yeah. Well,
0: hopefully, you know, we, all I think we all can agree that we hope that, you know, the current conflict in Ukraine does not lead to a uh, nuclear escalation. So hopefully there we're, will be, we are know, historians 50 or hundred years from now, looking back and trying to figure out how America became so crazy. <laughs>
1: and, um, well, it could be a resource for that. And by the way, I don't think we explicitly said a lot of people know that you worked for blogging heads for a long time and were and played a, a big role in a lot of our early, uh, early successes so so there
0: <laughs> yes and um yeah proud proud to have contributed to uh, to the cause but now doing my own thing Culture determined youtube check it out <laughs> podcast feed aryhcw on twitter if you want to follow,
1: follow me there yeah amen
0: all okay, right thanks bob
1: thanks Ari. see you bye